Hi everyone. These are your hosts, Tim and Yulia. Hi Yulia. Hi Tim. Hi everyone. Welcome to the episode three of Peace Ed Chat, a podcast all about peace, peace education, and peace building. Today we are excited to have our colleague Dr. Lindsay Horner from the University of Edinburgh to talk about her work on peace education and peace building. Hi Lindsay. Hi Tim. Thanks for agreeing to talk about your research. We are very excited to have this conversation with you and to learn more about your research. Your publications offer fascinating insights and proposals, and we are happy you agreed to share them with us. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Can you tell us about the peace education project you've been doing? So my work in peace education stems from living in Mindanao, the Philippines, where I lived for two years and I worked in an international missionary school. So Mindanao was the site, or is the site of a protracted conflict, often described as an ethnic or religious conflict between the Muslim minority and Christian majority of the Philippines. And I was there for 9-11 and the build-up of the ally invasion of Afghanistan. So it was a very volatile time. So it was after this I started my postgraduate study in education and international development and it made sense for me to look at the impact of conflict on education and on development because of that experience that time there. But I wanted to do something hopeful so I was aware of the complexities of education and it's multiple and nuanced relationship with conflict, it's not just positive as we know the two faces and I decided to focus on peace education and this was a very deliberate decision to orientate my work to the positive and potential for peace. So, of course, you know, people are asking you about your research, your friends, your family, your mum and dad. And when you talk about peace, they kind of roll their eyes. It's this, this fluffy thing, isn't it? It's the fluffy stuff, the stuff of utopias. And it was this accusation, oh, it's just the stuff of utopias, that set my path, really. So rather than taking this as, as the late-term dismissal of wishful thinking that it was probably meant as, I reclaimed it and started to think about peace in relation to futures. So at the time, I was also reading John Caputo's book, Weakness of God, and he introduced me to, to Derrida, one of the most prominent recent philosophers of the future. So my peace education project became about futures, but futures in, in the here and now. It seems like your friends and family gave you a great idea, not even realizing it. It's fascinating to think about peace as a utopia. You mentioned reading Caputo and Derrida at the time. Was there anyone else who influenced your thinking and envisioning of peace? So if you take the two philosophers that influenced me most, Derrida, his work on future-orientated event, but also Bloch's work on willful utopias. So they both see an unbound and open future ready to be shaped and changed, but they use different methods and different language to talk about that. So Bloch talks of critique as the starting point of utopia, and Derrida talks of deconstruction as the starting point of reconstruction. But in a nutshell, you have the idea that the future is not fixed, and instead of accepting the future present, we cannot usher in something different. So to this, I added the scholarship of Bonaventura de Sousa Santos, who calls that ushering of something different, the work of translation. So for Santos, the work of translation can be topical hermeneutics, or where we draw from multiple perspectives to translate new ideas of the future, of utopia, of the peace, of the event peace. In terms of peace education, well, if we see 
The future is uncertain, then the role of peace education, which is an education orientated to a peaceful future, the role is to try and usher in that peace to come. Now, there's a lot of philosophical caveats I'm not going to necessarily go into here. I think listeners can explore these philosophers some more if they're interested. But for me to unpack it here and now, it's going to get a bit chewy. And this podcast will become about philosophy only. Whereas I think we want to stick to a philosophical or theoretically informed peace education. But without going too much into chewiness, it is important to say this is not a teleological process. It doesn't have an endpoint. A future-orientated peace is not about replacing the future present of today with a different future present, which would also be limiting. So my theoretical framework then, Peace as an Event, Peace as Utopia, or PEPU for short, combines Bloch's work on utopia and Derrida's philosophy of the event to stress an undecided and uncontained future which houses an ethical space to come. So PEPU then is an approach to peace which seeks to agitate fixed ideas and create space for alternative thinking. Well, I'm not interested in fixed ideas of peace. I am interested in the spaces this uncertainty creates. The unfixing of ideas allows us to demand alternatives. Alternatives that are always deferred, because remember, this isn't a teleological project, but it doesn't matter that they're deferred because it's the process, the imagining that helps us think about what peace means for us in the here and now and how to produce it. So, for example, Bloch talks about novum or front. Front is the most forward section of present time, and in front is the potential of things to come. So for Bloch, the potential exists in the here and now, even if it's not realised. And my research, therefore, is about recognising the reciprocal incompleteness of differing and contradictory understandings of peace, and considering how a space for dialogue emerges, which can aid the translation of peace both as a concept, but also importantly as an experience. Can you tell us more about the context of where you work? Okay, so at the beginning, I said that I lived in Mindanao, and this was where my interest in education, in peace and in conflict started. I wanted to give something back, so I started my research journey here. Now, of course, looking back, that was naive, but before I realised how extractive research can be and how you never give back, your debt just keeps growing as the community gives you more and more. But one of the things my host communities asked of me was to share their story. So hopefully this will help me to honour that commitment. So let me tell you a little bit about their story. So Mindanao is, is the site of, depending on your definitions of when it started, one of the oldest ongoing conflicts dating back to the Spanish arrival on the island. In its most recent incarnation, which is what most people think of, we can think the conflict is starting in the late 1960s with the formation of the Moro National Liberation Front, so the MNLF. So Moro is what means uh, to represent Muslims, so Moro and Muslim are interchangeable in the Philippines. And the MNLF represented the Moro population and their calls for autonomy. So regardless of when you think the conflict starts, the roots do go back for centuries. Lindsay, can you please tell us a little bit more about those roots? Yeah, so uh, the current conflict is often described as a religious or ethnic conflict. Some people say it isn't really about religion, but about resources and poverty. We can see in conflict areas, provision and coverage of social services are below the median provinces in the Philippines. But also these lines of poverty 
follow the same lines as religion and my host communities would often talk about the conflict in religious terms so it's hard to untangle now whether this is a religious conflict or not in terms of what it's really about it is couched in terms of religion between muslim and christian so the muslim religion was first introduced to the islands that would later become known as the Philippines with the arrival of Muslim traders in the 13th century. And the Muslim traders and missionaries settled in Holo in the southern Philippines by the end of the 13th century. And by the early 16th century, Islamic influence had consolidated in Mindanao as a whole and also extended as far north as Mindoro and southern Luzon. According to this account, Islam spread peacefully through the Philippines with no colonial agenda. It was in the 16th century that the Spanish colonised the islands and named them the Philippines after King Philip II of Spain. But this wasn't the whole archipelago as we call the Philippines today. The colonisation and struggle for land was not instant. So initially the Spanish only managed to colonise Luzon and the Visayas, leaving Mindanao unconquered. And the military campaign to subjugate Mindanao was arguably never accomplished and Spain never fully controlled Mindanao. Uh, but the main burden of the Spanish campaign on Mindanao fell on Filipinos converted to Christianity. So the hostility originating from Spanish colonial ambitions to extend territory became instead between Filipino Christians and Muslims, and arguably engendered the root of suspicion and separatism between them we see now. This is interesting. So what about the contemporary situation? So the contemporary conflict isn't just about this historical war, but the iteration of Muslim uh, suspicion or oppression continued through successive waves. So even though the Spanish never successfully attained, or arguably never successfully attained, sovereignty over Mindanao, it didn't stop her ceding the whole archipelago during the Spanish-American War. And this mistake was then frozen into the concept of the Philippine nation as a single whole archipelago when it achieved independence in 1946. In the late 1960s, under a land titling system that allowed land not titled to be awarded to an applicant, a growing number of Christians settled in Mindanao. So land that was permanently or seasonally occupied by the indigenous peoples of Mindanao was viewed as potential resource and wealth, and under this land titling system became the property of Christian outsiders. So, of course, indigenous and Muslim people could also apply for the land, however, didn't understand that they had to apply for what they saw was their own land and then subsequent logging and mining concessions and, and environmental devastation of large areas have impacted entire communities in Mindanao. Furthermore, the indigenous population in Mindanao was seen as an untapped source of manual labor. You mentioned the indigenous population and the Muslim population. Is it the same group? Uh, yeah, now that's a, that is a good question. When people refer to the indigenous people of Mindanao, they are usually referring to a group that are called the, Lumad, the Lumads, who are not Muslim. But this is a, a political ca category that was introduced in the late 1960s during the land titling system described above. It was meant to describe all non-Moro or non-Muslim indigenous people that were impacted by the aggression that ensued. So there were 13 Lumad tribes and the category is important in that they are a people with a collective political identity and subject to violence and displacement. However, while the Lumad represents the identity of the indigenous population that did not convert to Islam 
the Islamic groups or Moros are also indigenous to Mindanao. Particularly in discussion of the impact of colonization and land titling systems, uh, we can talk about these groups together. However, there is an important difference that needs to be maintained as the Lumas are politically and demographically lower status than Moros and need to be specific, uh, considered specifically in any idea of utopian future for the Philippines and war Mindanao. And they sometimes get forgotten because the Mindanao conflict is always positioned as a religious war between Muslims and Christians. We forget about the Lumad. Circling back to the conflict that has been going on for such a long time, can you tell us more about what conflict means for local people? Mindanao, in this context, conflict means structural and cultural violence against ethnic Muslims in Mindanao, as well as physical violence that erupts in Muslim regions. So many of the Muslims in my host communities would tell stories of discrimination in renting a house or securing a job. I heard stories of education that was just assumed a Christian orientation, of how Muslims are viewed as backstabbing and untrustworthy. I saw swathes of unplanted land and heard stories about how this land was left unplanted for generations when all they wanted to do was farm the land for their own subsistence, land that they felt was theirs. I heard stories of political violence with candidates being gunned down on their way to register to vote on perceived journalist blackouts and unfair media representation. And I personally experienced the multiple military stops and checks that form the everyday backdrop of travel in West Mindanao. That is a dire situation which reminds me a lot of other conflict-affected contexts, especially with indigenous populations. I wonder if the people you collaborated with or had conversations with talked about what peace means and what it entails to build peace. Um, so, all of this informed different ideas of peace. For, for many, it was a form of what they called Bank Samoro, or Muslim nation. But what Muslim rule or, or Muslim nation meant was different and might span from a separate state to just an autonomous region. And as one might expect, when approaching a context from an idea that peace is not fixed, there was no universal answer instead a vast ecology of peace knowledges. For some, land reform was a pressing issue, including land reform of the ill-gotten gains of elite capture performed by Muslims in the MNLF during a previous peace deal. The original voice of the Muslim people of the 1960s, the MNLF, had fractured and infighting among Muslim factions for conflict gains was a smaller part of the conflict against the Christian government of the Philippines. And there were also those ethnic Muslims outside of any representation, the Bedin, as they would call themselves, or what in English we might say the, the queer Muslims, who saw violence and associated ideas of peace as complicatedly embroiled in a conservative Islam. So whether inside or outside of formal Islamic frameworks, peace often included access to life opportunities, education, livelihoods, religious freedom, physical security and freedom from fear of physical oppression and raids, and also a clean government. At the time of my field work, there were three main autonomous armed groups operating in Mindanao, fighting for autonomy. The Moro National Liberation Front, or MNLF, already mentioned, the Moro Islamic Liberation Front, the MILF, and the Abu Sayyaf. There were others, but these were the three main ones. 
And while the media might like to portray these all as terrorists, and they were all listed by the CIA as terrorist groups, they occupied different spaces. So the Abu Sayyaf mostly confirmed, conformed to the mass media caricature of terrorism, employing tactics of randomness and fear, including kidnapping and beheadings. And they were largely constrained to the Sulu Islands and Holo at the time of my research, so their reach was limited. This didn't stop the media portraying the whole conflict with a tinge of Islamic terrorism. The majority of those I met in support of the ideology of some form of autonomy for Muslim Mindanao were not, in my opinion, terrorists. Furthermore, much of the physical component or direct violence performed in the Mindanao conflict resembled guerrilla warfare more than terrorism. The MILF has a social branch as well as a military branch, and in this sense, well incomplete, could be seen as an attempt to set itself up for wider governance. Since my fieldwork, actually a lot has changed in Mindanao, not least the formation of ISIS in the Philippines. To my mind, this is really worrying, a very worrying development but I can't address it directly as I don't have first-hand account of it or its development or how and why it developed because this was outside uh, my research window in Mindanao. Have they developed any peace education to address any of these issues and to achieve peace that they want? And if yes, can you tell us more about the type or types of peace education that they've had? So when I lived, when I was in the Philippines, there were talks of peace marches in one of the communities where I lived for a couple of months, I was told about a school club to teach Islamic customs. I think it was an after-school club. I, I saw, I witnessed uh, the process and the teaching in UNICEF homeschools in poor Muslim communities, which I guess was an attempt to address structural violence. But I didn't really conduct a survey of peace education programs. I was interested in discovering what was organically already existing in terms of peace knowledges in the Muslim communities that generously hosted me and what enabled their translation or how to usher them in. What's interesting is I don't think the communities I worked with were too interested in these peace education or peace, peace initiatives either. So one person told me, oh, we have peace marches. They even got Cat Stevens over to lead one. But what's the point? They just say, let's have peace, but don't change anything the community projects Caleb's leading, now that's real peace work. It's interesting that the UNC Valley in protest or in marches, I've had similar conversations with people in different parts of the world, but can you tell us more about the projects you just mentioned that Caleb's leading and who's Caleb? Let me talk about the community projects Caleb, Caleb was leading and how I see it as peace education. Well, first, Caleb was the lead community organiser in one of the four Muslim communities where I conducted research in Mindanao. He lived in a rural village in West Mindanao, and I found myself living with him in his village because he was a community leader in one of the communities that worked with Malika Bridge, which is a pseudonym for the NGO that hosted me and introduced me to the Muslim communities they worked with. So the communities would partner with Malika Bridge to facilitate community organising and network for resources. Community volunteers are provided with resources from linked Christian donors. For example, a clean water system for a village, public toilets, a community preschool. So Malika Bridge helped their partners in an advisory role and in their access to Christian resources to facilitate projects requested by the community and run by community 
volunteers. Malika Bridge did not run the projects themselves. And while they are largely resourced through their contacts and training is provided through them, emphasis is put on what the community can provide and projects are orientated around their own values and priorities. So for example, three of the communities working with Malika Bridge that I visited, and I visited four, had built and ran preschools. So they were all different in their development and how they ran. So in Caleb's village, the preschool came about because of experience from the Muslim community that if a child attended a school with no preschool education, then their poor performance in relation to other children would relegate them to the back of the class from the start of their school career, and they would largely be ignored for the rest of their schooling. Partnering with Malika Bridge, the community volunteers put together a proposal uh, to build a preschool, and Malika Bridge disseminated their need for resources across their relatively wealthy network of Christian donors. The community then built the school and Malika Bridge also helped them to train about, uh, think about, help them think about the organising value of the preschool and some basic teacher training. So training is probably the wrong word as it was more a process of critical conscious raising and Freire's notion of critical conscious raising was an inherited part of the partnership approach across all projects. The shaping of how resources are used from a religious and cultural perspective. Sorry to interrupt you, Lindsay, but can you give us an example of how religious and cultural context shaped it? During my time living in Caleb's community, a preschool hosted what they called a recognition, which was their equivalent of a graduation, but you don't graduate from preschool, everyone finishes preschool. It, it was a huge community occasion with dignitaries, local politicians in attendance, children being recognised, wore traditional ethnic Muslim clothes, and performed traditional Moro dances and said prayers to Allah. And there was a really large turnout from the village for the occasion. But there were also tears. The dignitaries in their speeches thanked the work of the preschool and reflected on how amazing it was to see their culture again in the village and the recognition that the preschool gave to them. And it is quite remarkable how little recognition there is for Moro traditions, even in West Mindanao, which is a Muslim area and the response to this small act of recognition underscores both its lack and importance. So can you just join the dots for us? How is this related to peace education? Well, first I should say that my work doesn't focus on schooling, but has a broader definition of peace education where I'm actually interested in the educational aspects of community organising. So what's important here is the partnership. Now, if we go back to the idea of peace as an agitated and unfixed idea, in this situation, we start with a local contextualised aspiration for peace around life opportunities, but not as an imposed model of preschool education. Preschool education is not simply imported in as some kind of universal model that will bestow some nondescript life opportunities on you. Instead, Preschool is building, translating an aspiration of what a peaceful utopia might mean when imagined from the village context. And for this preschool, this included the nurturing of an Islamic identity. Now, this might sound simple, but the politicised nature of the context and politicised idea of Islam makes this achievement remarkable. But also, let's think about how the community organising is managed. And as we discuss this, keep in mind, this is a very political context and trust between ethnic Muslims and ethnic Christians is incredibly low. So in the scenario described above, 
the Muslim communities are working alongside a Christian NGO, Malika Bridge. So part of Malika Bridge's role is, is to act like a vetting agency. They do not simply connect their Muslim partners with Christian donors. They manage the interaction of the churches and Christian organisations, selecting resources that come without conditions attached. And this is really important, actually, because there's a lot of evangelism by development going on in Mindanao. So because there are no strings attached, because of the friendships they've built up over the years, the ethnic Muslims trust Malika Bridge to make good links. They are willing to work with these Muslims because Malika Bridge have recommended them. Conversely, uh, Christian organisations feel that they can entrust their resources to the communities. And again, remember, this is a very political context and the sense of distrust between these communities is huge. But they can trust these communities because Malika Bridge can vouch for them. And this, this, this is actually quite a fascinating protest when you think about it, because it goes straight to addressing, to some extent at least, power. So we see the wealth and power possessed by the Christian majority released with a little of their power or conditions removed. So while the control of their own productivity is put in the hands of the Muslims, a little bit of the power is redressed. Now, this is small, I'm not making grand claims for this, but it is big in the sense of its rarity and as an example of the work of translation, the ushering in of the to come of peace and agitating fixed ideas. This power sharing, it sounds incredible and very rare, especially as you note, it's a very politicized context with such a deep rooted conflict. Yes, it is, it is, it is rare and it's really important in itself, but for me, the biggest space for learning about and for peace is the relationship, the spaces of crossover that bring Christians and Muslims together in partnership. So the ecology of peace knowledge is represented in this space is vast. And how do we together translate these to build towards an unfixed utopian future? So what we have in this space that I witnessed when I was in the field was an incredible relationship between what should have been two hostile groups where they advocated for each other and learned from each other in a way that didn't colonise the other, upheld the other's integrity and accepted the diversity it brought to the relationship. So I call this practice of journeying with. I've tried to understand this further using the theoretical frame of post-secularism because in the Philippine context, in a conflict couched in terms of religion, the upholding of dignity of the other is often located in the religious identity. So in the examples I'm talking about here, in the projects that Caleb run, we see instead of fear and distrust of a religious person, the acceptance and embracing of the religious person, both Christians of Muslims and Muslims of Christians journeying with each other. And so we have the educational outcomes of the project themselves, promotion and teaching of Islamic values, skills, training and capacity building. So for example, we're training on how to teach, how to build a water tower, but also the critical engagement in their situation that comes from the approach to those projects. But we also have the educational outcomes of the community organising process, the learning from and about the other, or journeying with, and the translation of different understandings of peace. This is indeed incredible how they have managed to build such a unique relationship considering the past and present violence. So based on all of this, what does your research say peace education should look like? What is striking about the example I've just used, just talked about, is the critical consciousness building, the role of networking, 
and how these can be used to surface agency. I think I'd like to add to this, and I think actually it's already there, so maybe underscore it, is the reciprocity of the educational endeavour. Uh, so reciprocity is a really important part of peace education. In context of conflict, there is always a power differential and therefore reciprocity is always going to be a challenge. So I think it's something we need, we, we can't just assume, we need to work at. So the removal of conditions from resources and the protection and respect for the community that we see, I've just talked about, challenges the economy of exchange that can be hidden in the gifting of resources. Malika Bridge were also very aware of the reciprocalness and power inequality. And because they were aware of this, they would often discuss exit strategies, not of their friendship, but of the projects. Aware that the longer they were involved, the greater risk they might colonise the communities inadvertently. So of course there's crossover, sharing and learning. It's not that we, we don't leave an impression on each other. That's part of journeying with. But colonisation is the erasure of that other, something violent and very different. I think something that is also quite key from considering Pepu is that it's never finished. We will constantly be ushering in the unfixed future. We can't, by definition, achieve this because if it's here, it's not the future and it's fixed. So we need to continually be engaging in our context, embedded in the peace knowledges, agitating them and translating them forward. Caleb told me a great story about this. He talked about small peace and big peace. He said people look at the situation and they think peace is no more evacuation. Peace is staying put, having stability. And this is peace for them. But once you get that peace, you can't say you've achieved peace. Now your peace is to experience the rites of passage, fulfilment and dignity of life. And this is what he calls big peace. And this is what I understand Derrida's event to be, that which never finishes because each new translation we have fails to capture it. So we strive for new translations. It's fascinating thinking about this. In one of your articles, you offer a critique of liberal peace and I wonder how what your colleagues in Mindanao have been doing can offer us a new approach to peace building that is not uh, as uh, liberal peace as you call your article destructive or counterproductive. Thanks, Yulia. Yeah, you're right to pick up that I'm not a fan of liberal peace. In many ways, the idea of Pepe was developed as an antidote to liberal peace, though I wouldn't want it to be interpreted in those simple binary terms. I'm not the only one that offers a critique of liberal peace, of course. For me, it started with my initial review of the peace literature way back when I started out in my postgraduate studies. And there was just something about terms like peace dividend that didn't sit right to me. For me, peace wasn't instrumental. Also, there was and still is a very technical language, like violence is a problem with a technical solution and, and peace is a technology to be applied. This technology was largely liberal state building, which is quite an ethnocentric idea. And when you're working in a context like Mindanao, where part of the root of the conflict is the same root of Western liberal expansionism, that can be really problematic. Later on, I started to understand more and I started to see the co hyphenates of liberalism, which I think underscore this point. So, for example, secularism and modernity, which are intricate parts of the referential language we use to describe the liberal state, 
we can't really refer to one without conjuring up the, the other in terms of these languages and these phrases. But as Talal Assad points out in his excellent uh, book, Formations of the Secular Christianity, Islam, Modernity, secularism is, argu is arguably performs the political function of disciplining religions and bringing them under the control of the nation state. By defining religion in opposition to the secular, it is individualized and privatized. And consequently, any manifestation of religion that does not restrain itself to the private sphere can be defined as a problem and legitimately sanctioned. And Assad applies this account to explain how the West thinks about Islam, which is considered as problematic and threatening because of Western health prejudices about what religion is and, and should be. So the discursive tools at my disposal at the time, and this was the early 2000s, and I think there are a lot more now, but the tools to engage with peace at that time then were problematic. And you could see this on the telly, soldiers re-described as peacekeepers, an invasion re-described as Operation Freedom in some kind of doublespeak. So through developing Pepu, I deliberately was looking to replace the logics of liberal peace. Instead of an instrumental, economic, teleological project, we find an unfixed future in flux. Instead of a known solution or technology, we find an event you engage with. Instead of an external, western, top-down structure foistered into situations, however incompatible, we have an organic, emerging idea of peace that is contextual. Very interesting perspective you have from your research, and there's so much we could talk about, but I am conscious of time. We will link your articles for the listeners to have a chance to explore this further. But I want to ask you, what's next in your work? Good question. The main thing that came out of my research was the role of crossover and journeying with to allow for the translation of peace. However, what's missing is why some people are able to journey with while others seem so closed off to each other. And a go-to phrase I have is, everybody has their story. And I, I really mean it. I'm keen to listen to others and learn from them. And sometimes when I use long philosophical words and ideas, I wonder if my approach just doesn't boil down to this. I mean, of course, it doesn't because listening to everyone's story without descending into relativism or understanding how to learn from their stories, it does require philosophy. And for me, that's a Derrida and Bloch's philosophy. But these caveats aside, how do we become the type of person that can journey with? In my experience, behind a lot of really innovative work I've seen around peace building are a few very important facilitators that have a, a set of skills that are beyond the usual. So while my work today has been interested in the mechanisms and environments of peace education, crossover, journeying with, networking, etc., I'm shifting to consider the person that facilitates this. What are the skills required of the peace builder and educator in these scenarios? What do they do differently? How do they think differently? What characteristics do they nurture and how can they be supported? So I was awarded a, a GCRF grant to lead a network to explore some of these questions, among others, with colleagues at the University of Hargreza in Somaliland, the University of Juba in South Sudan and the University of Cambridge, alongside partners at the Liberation War Museum in Bangladesh and Alert International in Lebanon. Unfortunately, like many other grants at the time, the UK government cut the ODA budget under the guise of COVID and rescinded the funding. But this is where I am still focused and I'm currently doing some theoretical work on the subject and hopefully 
that will be followed in the future with some empirical field research if I get the grants to do that. You know, trying to understand the skills and characteristics of people who can facilitate the peace education you envision is really important. It's really unfortunate that the funding for this was rescinded. Hopefully there will be other opportunities to conduct empirical research on this topic together with your partners. There's a lot more to discuss, Lindsay, and your article on populism is incredibly insightful, but we'll leave it to another episode. <laughs> and well, thank you so much, Lindsay, for such, such a rich contribution. It was really great talking to you about this. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity and thank you for inviting me. And to our listeners, thanks for listening to the Peace Ed Chats with your hosts, Tim and Yulia. We hope you enjoyed this episode and the deep dive into peace education in the Philippines. If you enjoyed this episode, please do share it with others. To catch all the latest from us, you can follow this podcast on Twitter and LinkedIn at Peace Ed Chat and find us on Spotify. That's all for this episode. See you next time.